The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and my colleague today, Tim Foster. Hello. And we're joined, our special guest today, we're joined by Zigurd Bathen, a veteran reporter, a college professor, a state communications director at various entities, and a writer for us, I'm happy to say, on mental health issues. Zigurd, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. Mental health, wide topic. It would drive us crazy, no pun intended, trying to get all of these things together. But we wanted to talk about this notion of pairing law enforcement people, officers on the beat with mental health professionals when they respond to certain kinds of calls. I, I, I'm thinking of family disturbance, there are others out there. Um, the idea being a person who's pro, who is proficient with mental health, with, with counseling and strategy can maybe get a better result than sending a couple cops on the beat to arrest somebody. What What's your take on that? Well, clearly where it's been programs like that have been implemented and there are quite a few around California. Uh, there's the SMART program in, in Los Angeles, which pairs an LAPD officer with a social worker or a clinician. Um, the PERT program, these are all acronyms in San Diego and in Sacramento, uh, Mayor Steinberg and um, uh, Chief Hahn, Daniel Hahn of the police department have they hired, uh, Han hired a, a social worker to head the mental health unit within the police department. I think she was probably the only, only social worker to be heading a mental health unit in a police department in Northern California, perhaps in the state. She's now in charge of a broader city um, department that yeah. is the community response team. And clearly, you know, the statistics show, the studies show, there's a program that's been in existence in Oregon for a long time called CAHOOTS. It's an acronym also. And um, it's been very successful in, in defusing situations that might otherwise turn violent. That is not to say that law enforcement should not be involved. Uh, really, the, the key is in the, when the, when the dispatch is made, that there be input from mental health professionals and that they might be paired with officers, or if it's a case where you know, they need to send someone out to a home, domestic violence cases can get very uh, difficult for law enforcement. And so uh, Mayor Steinberg has emphasized that in a domestic violence case, you need to send a police officer out on that. Um, how, how does Los Angeles do it now. Uh, they get a call, it gets filtered, and they they send uh, a cop on the beat and a mental health professional. If it, well, if the that, filtering ideally, ideally, that's the way it should work. Um, I wrote about that in uh, our two part piece last last year. I think it was in July on um, law enforcement response to mental health calls, and it's on, on our website. Um, they. It, it starts with the officer on patrol, whoever is called, you know, whoever's available goes out on the call. And then the, um, the mental health team, the SMART team, which includes clinicians and uh, the lieutenant that headed it at that, when I interviewed him, Lieutenant Brian Bixler, um, said he, 
he had been offered additional officers. He wanted more clinicians. I think they had about 60, 60 clinicians, these yeah. psycholog psychologists, social workers. So they can't go out on every call, but they can follow up because oftentimes these cases need uh, follow up. Um, but they also need direction at the at the beginning. I mean, the case that that got so much publicity, um, and in the wake of the Chauvin uh, verdict, uh, it's gotten even more. Is was the McIntyre case? Uh, I think it was in 2017, where the sheriff's department had been called several times by the family of a young man who was having a severe mental health incident. And they decided he didn't meet the criteria, which are very stringent in California under Lannerman Petrus Short, the 51, so-called 5150 criteria. He didn't meet the criteria for a 72-hour hold. And is that the so, maximum time? Is 72 hours the maximum amount of time they can do this voluntarily, involuntary? Sometimes it's less than that. More likely, you know, people are cycled through emergency rooms. They don't get any help. Yeah. They go back on the street. Um, it's a huge problem. Sorry to interrupt, but is, is that a fact of the civil liberties that, that they don't want to deny people their civil liberties or is it because there's no money? Well, that was the foundation of, of Lannerman Petrus Short, which was passed as a major reform measure. I mean, I covered conditions, terrible conditions in the state mental hospitals in the, in the 70s for the Sacramento Bee. And, and um, you know, the laws that were passed in the late 60s and the emptying of the state mental hospitals was a direct response to the fact that civil rights had been badly abused. People had been yeah. detained against their will, people who were mentally ill, people who were developmentally disabled, um, sometimes for years, sometimes for decades, women were sterilized routinely. Uh, I mean, it was a terrible system. So the current, you know, the Lannerman Petra Short is now more than, than uh, 50 years old and it clearly needs to be updated um, because currently the 72-hour hold is the main tool in California. Um, people can be kept longer, uh, but it requires a, a hearings. It requires involvement um, by judges have to hold hearings. They can stay maybe for 14 days for possibly 30 days or longer. There are conservatorships, which is one of the most um, extreme measures for people who simply cannot manage their own affairs. And of course, now we've been writing a lot about Laura's Law, which was passed in nearly 20 years ago after a young woman named Laura Wilcox was killed by a mentally ill man who had gone to a, um, a mental health clinic in, in Nevada County and shot her, two other people, injured three more. And his family had been trying to get help for him for weeks and the clinicians wouldn't, wouldn't listen to them. You know, there are stringent restrictions on how, uh, I mean, they could have listened, but they, you know, they can't give them information about, about a patient. And he was a, a patient at that clinic, but um, you know, Laura's law now, is in place in uh, 20 counties in California, 70% uh, of the population, all large counties except Sacramento and, San, and Santa Clara, which appear, you know, some say that they will adopt it. What, uh, uh, Zygrid, what has been, I know you mentioned this before, but um, this, uh, Sacramento and Santa Clara major counties, but they don't want to, to do this. What is their complaint? What's their big issue? 
Well, the departments of behavioral health in the counties are responsible for for these programs, and they they yeah. say that it would impinge on civil rights, that it's an involuntary program. Most of the Laura's law, it involves a civil court judge, what's called the black robe effect. Um, And most of the cases are voluntary. Uh, People do it willingly. Um, They often, you know, get into recovery. They get intensive treatment. Uh, Some are even employed in local programs as a result. Incarceration is reduced, hospitalization is reduced, it saves money, um, victimization of mentally ill people, many of whom are, are homeless, uh, some of whom, or many of whom use uh, street drugs as self, self-medicating. It's a small population, mm-hmm. but it's a population that utilizes public services um, extensively. Um, is there any empirical evidence um, that having this pairing of clinicians and law enforcement on particular calls is good as it, uh, it sounds like LA has done statistical analyses of this and not, yes. and, and yes, come up with some meaningful data. Considerable uh, indication that uh, the program in Oregon, for example, they um, reduced the police response to, I think it's in Eugene, Oregon, where it started, um, police response to mental health calls just astronomically. Um, and the you know the public savings public uh, f- savings in public funds were considerable, um, and it's been the same. I mean, it's logical. You talk to police officers; they don't want to be doing this kind. Of, they it, they're not trained in mental health issues. Yeah. Uh, they're trained to respond to you know potentially violent situations, and that's why oftentimes these cases end up with somebody being killed, as was the case in the McIntyre. You know, he had run up on a free on a free Sacramento freeway during rush hour and there were helicopters overhead. There were, you know, multiple law enforcement agencies involved by that time. This is the young man who was uh, not on two different mental health calls by officers, was not deemed um, a danger to himself or others. So they didn't take him in for a 72 hour hold. And so instead he took off, he hit a deputy with a rock, but he was unarmed. And uh, former Sacramento police chief, Rick Brazil, who was then the inspector general for Sacramento County did a very scathing report, which was very critical of the sheriff's department. Uh, Sheriff Scott Jones didn't like the report. Um, Brazil basically said it you know, could have been avoided. They didn't need to kill him. Uh, he was isolated. There was a canine involved. Uh, 28 rounds were fired. It was during a busy rush hour commute. There were bullets found in the roadway. Uh, Brazil was very critical. Scott Jones uh, locked him out um, of the department, said he didn't know what he was talking about, said it was a lay opinion, even though Brazil has extensive law enforcement experience and is the former Sacramento police police chief. The Sacramento County Board, County Board of Supervisors uh, uh, did not do anything to support Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, well, clearly your, your question was if uh, if this saves money. I mean, yes, it does. And, and there are many studies that show show that it does save money. You keep people out of jail. You keep people from being victimized. You keep people from being homeless. Um, you get their untreated mental illness 
treated because most mental illnesses are treatable with medication, with therapy. There's a serious lack of psychiatric facilities, what they call beds. Uh, families often end up being the ones providing that, uh, that service. Um, and, um, you know, yes, it clearly saves money and, it's, and it's, it's successful in the communities where it's been tried. I think it's just being rolled out now. Um, Mayor Steinberg in Sacramento has avoided using the term defunding the police because that's not the point of this. It sort of, you know, it means um, deciding how to spend the funding in a different way. Did, did anything positive come out of that uh, report? Maybe even even if not in the short term, but in the long term? Or did other counties see it and say, hey, there, there's some things we got to look at here? Well, all of, all of the counties are, are have been, uh, you know, local jurisdictions are coming up with a variety of um, proposals, you know, from changing the name. I mean, it's a nomenclature thing, changing the name of a police department to the Department of Public Safety or something like that, bringing social workers in to work with officers and not just social workers, but psychologists and also peer support. You know, there was a bill passed in the legislature last year for peer certification um, that had been introduced, you know, repeatedly over the years. And those are, those are people who have what's called lived experience, uh, family members or people who have experience with the mental health system, who have, are mentally ill themselves uh, in getting treatment. And they can work with, they may not have the degrees necessary, you know, as a social worker or a psychologist, but they can work directly with people in a, in a very effective way. Um, and, and that saves public funds. Anything that avoids sending someone to jail, which are currently um, maybe, I've seen figures as high as half of all jail and, and uh, prison populations are mentally ill. Do you have any idea what uh, percentage of police calls involve like responding to mentally ill people? Is that is that number large one? number? I mean, I can give you percentages if I dig back into my notes, um, but there have been a lot of a lot of studies. But it's a huge part um, of of their you know when you talk one on one with officers and uh, police chiefs and sheriffs, they you know they will tell you this is not. Uh, what they are trained to do, you know, uh, they would prefer to use their very limited resources on uh, violent crime, on, you know, preventing uh, gang violence or, you know, something that they, they are trained to do. They're not trained to talk down a person having a psychotic episode and get them into treatment. That's just not what they're, what they're trained to do. And the, and the, um, the jails and prisons, um, you know, they're very frank in LA of calling it, you know, the, one of the country's largest mental health facilities in the, in the, in the main jail. How, how and, are the real, uh, I know we've talked about this before and without giving anything away about a story you may or may not be working on, but how are the real mental health, how real, how, how are the mental health, mental hospitals in California doing you know we always hear anecdotal evidence people talk about we have this sort of vision of these huge gothic structures somewhere filled with the mentally ill which is pretty accurate actually i mean i would oh, okay. i saw some of them in the 70s when they were in the process of 
closing them. It started during the Reagan administration and then continued under under the first Jerry Brown administration. And I've been in a number of them, and and some of them are you know some of them are old, uh, you know, they, and Gothic is a is a good good description. There used to be a trolley in Stockton that ran up and down the the street that said, you know, the, it was labeled insane asylum. Um, so yeah, some of them were pretty Gothic uh, places. I, you know, that they, was the destination that wasn't Stockton. That was the place they were going to, right? Stockton. Yeah, right. But the, you know, <laughs> although you do associate, I would love to do more. I would love to do more someday on the history of the state mental hospitals, because there's some really um, interesting history and terrible history, um, which, guides mental health policy in California today. You asked about the mental hospitals currently. When the mental hospitals were closed, unfortunately, there was never a system set up for um, community treatment. It was just supposed to you know, spring up automatically. There was a system set up through the, what are called regional centers for the developmentally disabled and who were also housed in state hospitals. And they do have a system for that. And many people are suggesting that's the kind of system we need for the mentally ill. And um, there are currently, I think, only about 5,000 people in the mental hospitals. Most of them are for the criminally insane. Uh, one was built in Koalinga, I believe, for um, uh, primarily for sex offenders. There's a terrible backlog in the courts right now and people incarcerated who have not gone to trial, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, because they need to have an assessment and evaluation um, in in a mental hospital, in one of the existing mental hospitals, and they're completely backed up. COVID must have just made that much worse. COVID has exacerbated that situation exponentially. There's a federal lawsuit in, uh, in district court in Sacramento about um, the uh, lack of space and the lack of, you know, they can't transfer people in because of COVID and also because of the lack of facilities. So people who have not even been convicted, who may not be mentally competent to stand trial are in jail, sometimes for months, sometimes for years. I did a story, part of one of the stories we did last year on, um, on the mental health courts was about uh, uh, an 83-year-old man who had uh, killed his roommate, who was a dear friend. He had dementia. He had severe dementia. And um, that's not, quote, unquote, a mental illness, but it has the same symptoms and the same, same results. And that case you know, went through the San Francisco court system. It took like two years which was extremely expensive. Um, I interviewed the public defender at length. Everybody knew in the court system that that was not what the outcome would be. And the outcome was that he was sent to a, um, a nursing home um, and where he died in Oroville. But in the meantime, the court costs were extraordinary. The public defender who handled the case, uh, that was when she said that case, she decided to retire. She teaches at UC Berkeley a course on mental health and the law. Um, And she had worked in the public defender's office in the mental health courts. The mental health courts are on the criminal side and they are designed for people. And there's some very good mental health courts. There's one in Sacramento, Santa Clara, they're all over the state. Um, But they they get people after they've been arrested. 
And the thinking now, um, as far as Laura's law and recent legislation, is that there, there needs to be an intervention before people get arrested. And Zygmunt, um, uh, on Laura's law, there's a deadline coming up. Just one last question. There's a deadline coming up um, uh, for counties to opt in or if they opt out to publicly say why they don't want to be in, involved in the strengthening Laura's law. Is that correct? And if that is, uh, what counties are you watching particularly to see if they opt in and they strengthen it? Well, the articles that we uh, posted last week um, have to do with that. De that's a state deadline. The legislation last year by um, Susan Eggman, who was then in the assembly, she's now in the state Senate. She's a former social worker and uh, social work professor at Sac State. And uh, Laura's Law originally, which was authored by Helen Thompson um, in the state assembly, was uh, either an opt-in or opt-out. Counties could either opt-in or they could opt-out, but they could do it quietly. They didn't have to have any kind of you know, major public hearing. Uh, the Eggman legislation last year requires that the counties have public hearings. And if they choose to opt-out, they have to do it in a public forum. Um, and it's been particularly intense in Santa Clara and Sacramento counties, um, which are the two large, only two large counties that are not, do not have Laura's Law programs in, in California. Okay. And if they, if they don't opt out with a board, board of supervisors resolution, they will automatically be opted in. The behavioral health departments of local behavioral health departments tend to be opposed to this or have in the past because they're afraid it will take money from other from other programs. Some say they already have similar programs, but there really is no other legal avenue for family members to utilize a civil court process. This is not a criminal court process right. to get treatment for uh, ser seriously mentally ill Okay. Family members who uh, are don't believe they're sick oftentimes and make up a large proportion of the homeless population, the population that cycles through the through the ERs and through the jails. But the counties have until May uh, May second. The Dep State Department of Healthcare Services loosely oversees the Laura's Law uh, programs, and um, the counties are supposed to present plans to the. Uh, State Department of Health Services by May 2nd. Uh, Sacramento County has gotten an extension um, to July 1st. The bill was effective on, the Eggman bill was effective on January 1st, but the author gave the county six months to set up the programs and to, you know, have these public hearings, which are ongoing currently. I hear that a number of smaller counties have already, you know, recommended opting out. I don't know whether their boards have taken action. They have until technically until July 1st when the bill takes effect. Okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, Zygmunt Bathon, thank you very much uh, for you. this uplifting, positive discussion of mental health problems. Serious. Uh, it's serious. Well, there are, there are positive stories. People do get well. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Zygmunt Bathon, thank you so much for being with us. We will see you soon. And now Tim and I are going to talk about the uh, we're going to chat about who had the worst week in California politics and governance during this past week. And uh, Tim, what do you think? Well, I think it was uh, early on in the week. I wasn't really sure. But uh, then, you know, Friday, Friday news dump, 
uh, Governor Newsom makes his fracking ban public. And I think it's hard to argue that anybody had a worse week than the California oil and gas industry, you know, WISPA and uh, Chevron and the rest of the folks who are doing any fracking. Although, to be honest, I don't even know, does Chevron do fracking? You know, honestly, I don't they do. Know. And so, they have a global interest too, which is obviously, which is interesting too. I, I, uh, I thought it was a, I thought it was a mixed bag. Newsom really wanted that anti-fracking bill. At least that's what we understand. I, I pretty much think he handpicked that author. I don't know if Scott Weiner was personally selected by Newsom, but Weiner's a heavyweight up here, and he does. He's most identified with housing and environmental issues in the San Francisco area. So when that bill went down by one vote, my first thought was. Gavin, you didn't put enough work on this thing. Maybe did, maybe didn't, but that's what it struck me. And how does he bounce from that? He, he comes back with an executive order, and which is great. And the environmentalists then were very, very happy. But I wonder how that plays out over time. I'm sure with his base, it's fine. And maybe that's the real answer to all these questions. It's good. So he, he's on the cusp of a potential recall election, which I guess is going to qualify. Uh, I don't know how this plays out there. Robbie Hunter, uh, the organized labor, a major power organized labor, uh, was not happy with it at all and said so in no uncertain terms, public from a jobs perspective. Uh, already ads are running. I've, I've seen ads on uh, the loss of jobs because of oh. anti-petroleum. On this, you've already seen them on that issue. Yeah, and I haven't even watched broadcast TV. I was t- I was watching a YouTube channel today on locations from "It's a Mad, 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 Mad World" and what they look like now. And all, all of a sudden, there, there was something from Kernville. I think it was, and all of a sudden, an ad popped up from uh, the petroleum industry. So, I mean, that's an interesting issue. I think it's I don't know how it plays out. Now, clearly, Robbie isn't voting for. Uh, some Republican challenger to Gavin Newsom if it comes down to the. You don't think that Robbie Hunter is going to support Caitlyn Jenner? You don't. I don't that? think at all. I was in fact Caitlyn. I was thinking immediately. Yeah, I can see that that combo getting. I don't think so. You know. Yeah. Well, uh, she she also you could argue she did not have a great week either. Uh, the whole um, making her announcement and getting some attention and then promptly announcing on Twitter that Gavin Newsom, quote unquote, Gavin Newsom's district attorneys were up to no good and was roundly criticized for implying that Gavin Newsom really had any control over uh, district attorneys. (laughs) So you could argue there, you know, I don't know that she had the, I I think that the petroleum industry had a worse week, but Gavin, I mean, uh, Caitlin Jenner did not have a great launch uh, so far. I agree. When you're being compared uh, to Carly Fiorina, that's not necessarily a good thing for your candidacy. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah, Uh, this is definitely a tough call. So, uh, Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And uh, uh, John Howard, we will talk to you next time. And if you've got anybody who you think should be on this, who should be uh, named as the person who had the worst possible week in California politics, let us know. Uh, we'll probably ignore it, but who knows? We may be desperate and we'll use it. So send it in. Okay. Thanks, John. <laughs> the Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.